Well, good morning to each of you. Uh, it's, it's good to be here and see if I can remember how to do this. Seems like it's been a little while, but... Well, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to be going through, beginning in verse 38. One thing I really uh, love about preaching is it forces uh, forces you to really get into the Word and study, and uh, it kind of, we should do that anyway, but it kind of makes that a higher level of priority. Uh, so we have come to a very interesting and important teaching from Jesus, and one of the most misunderstood passages in all the Bible, and wrongly applied this specific principle that we're going to be dealing with, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, that Jesus is teaching on, I have seen through studying this principle in preparation for this sermon. And I now believe that this specific principle and command, more than any other found in the Mosaic Law, shows the awesome justice, equity, and compassion of God. Now, I know that's a, a very um, intense statement because there's so many things that speak to that in the Word of God and in the law of God, but I think you'll see that this more than most. And Jesus here in Matthew five thirty-eight through 42 highlights this and shines forth the glory of God's justice of God's compassion. He corrects their wrong understanding and application of it. He gets to the heart and the principle of the matter. Jesus shows us this principle, this command through a divine lens. As if to take off, he says, let me, let me take off your glasses of sin and corruption and let you have the glasses, the lens of God and see this through the eyes of God. When one tries to view the law of God, the gospel, or any part of the word of God through carnal eyes, we're often led astray. And this is what 1 Corinthians 2.14 is about, which says, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. So no wonder why there's so many misunderstandings about this passage and about so many others. No wonder why there's so many heretical teachings and so much confusion, because so many are trying to see the principles throughout the Sermon on the Mount and other places of the Bible through a carnal lens. And you'll be led astray. And the church will be led astray when we allow people to do that and teach 
from that position. But Jesus here is showing us how the author, the author of this verse, sees it. Through the eyes of God, we see the rich, the richness, the fullness of it. Only through the eyes of God. Only through the Spirit. And in perfect Jesus-like form, He does all this in five verses. So let's read the text before we get too far into this. Matthew five thirty-eight. You have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Well, the principle, the command of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, is true. And it's good. Uh, Many times throughout the Scripture uh, here in the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll get to more of this later, but Jesus was dealing with a tradition. You have heard it said, but I say unto you. This actually, from verse 38, is an exact quote from the Old Testament. So he's not diminishing the law he's not trying to change it in any way he's correcting a false interpretation that they had been under uh, in accordance with their tradition so it's true and it's a good law it's just and the command is largely a limitation on what retribution can be implemented on the guilty and to protect against out of control vengeance to fairly restore lost property. It seeks to provide fair and just outcomes. That's who God is. That's His character. When Jesus says, here you have heard it said, but I say unto you, He's not changing the command or the principle at all. He's using this principle to show how man's heart and nature are opposite God's justice. Because when people teach from the Word of God, when we see the Word of God through a carnal lens, things evidently, and this always happens, but things get turned upside down or twisted. And part of Jesus' mission when he began teaching, when he began preaching, he was setting all the wrongs right. He was coming as a heroic savior. And this was one of the things that he was doing in his ministry was he was correcting all the wrongs. You see, this verse was being 
misused, misapplied. And this is the devil's way to take something good from God and somehow manipulate it and turn it into something bad, turning into something that diminishes the Word of God and, and confuses everybody. And there is a lot of confusion on this issue. There are people who take this Scripture and really a lot of this has happened since the age of enlightenment, so some maybe 120, 130 years ago since that time. Uh, there has been so many false interpretations of, of this and other scriptures, but some have even gone as far as to say we don't even need any law. Jesus is saying to get rid of the police, the magistrates, everything. Just totally uh, you know, not do anything with crime or, or evil. Just, I guess, pray about it and see what God will do. And, and literally, people have in the, in the Christian community said this. But that's not the, what Jesus is saying. That's not right. And so I just want to, in part, vindicate the law of God in some way through teaching this properly, through spiritualizing. Um, you see, when we are wronged, we seek restitution far beyond what we lost. That's our human nature. One spills hot coffee on themselves and blames the one who spilt it and served it. And say the person's loss or cost to them in medical treatment is $100, well, they sue at law and seek a million. And for those of you who are younger, that's an actual true story. That happened. Someone sued McDonald's because they spilt hot coffee on them. And they blamed McDonald's, and they took it to law, and they were awarded over a million dollars. I think that happened in the mid to late 90s. Over and above the, the, the right, what was lost, and, and what the right restitution would be. You see, when it comes to ourselves being wronged or unfairly treated, we will demand over and above from the offending party. We strive to get what we think is due us. But if we are the offending party, we strive over every penny. We don't want to uh, restore anything more than we have to. And Jesus is saying that this is the opposite way with God. That God's way is opposite. When we are wronged, as legitimate as it may be, we should let it go when possible. Turn the other cheek. That's what he says here. But when we are asked to make something right or restore loss that we have caused, we're called to give more if we can. When we're asked to make something right, to restore a loss that we're responsible for, Jesus says, he says, go with him one mile. I say, go two. He asks you for your, your coat, to give him your cloak also. Go over and above. That's the spirit that we should have. That's God's character. 
Now, God has given man a conscience that is moral. We have a sense of morality uh, that's innate. Not because you learned that from your parents. Mommy and daddy didn't teach you that. No, they helped shape it and they codify it. But it's God-given. God's given us a conscience. The word conscience is just con meaning with, science meaning knowledge, or with knowledge of morality. We have a sense of justice because we're made in the image of God. God is a just and holy God. He is the supreme being. He is high and above and perfect in all His ways. And we're made in His image. So we have a sense of justice. But in the fall, man's sense of justice has been corrupted. And it has been tainted and turned into a vengeful spirit. Now, our society, by and large, has become vengeful in many ways. Through the diminishing and the casting away of the law of God, it's gotten even worse. But our society has become very vengeful. By demanding certain rights and retribution to the point of setting aside law and order. Yeah, we, we set aside law and order for the sake of our rights. And this is what I mean. We see it in many protests where people demand rights for things that are even ungodly. They demand abortion rights, gay rights, transgender rights. The list is long. People demanding rights and retribution for things that are not even morally acceptable. And I want you to see how they even try to um, mash together things that, that may be, you know, honorable or dutiful to, to seek out. Like, they try to connect gay rights to, say, uh, racial equality. Well, this is how messed up our conscience has become through sin. Because it's not a sin to be black or to be white. It is a sin to be a practicing homosexual. So you can't demand a right for something that God calls abominable. But people demand retribution. If you won't give me these rights, then there's going to be a, you're going to have to pay. Y'all remember, and we just passed the, uh, the one-year anniversary here, I think it was yesterday or the day before, of the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Now, that did not abolish abortion. I wish it had, but it didn't. It simply just said, well, the court said, well, this ruling before was a wrong ruling. We're returning this issue to the states where it belonged. And so the states have to work it out. But in, in that, there was so much protest. It, it went even beyond protest. It was a call for blood. Uh, there was people that had somehow gotten a hold of the addresses of some of the Supreme Court justices, and they put it out there. And they were calling for violence on these people. There were death threats on these people who, uh, on these conservative justices. And so this is the vengeful spirit of man demanding these rights 
these ungodly things. Now, when the cause is just and, I mean, there is a time for a peaceful protest. I'm not against that. But this is not even that. We've, these things often are a call for blood. People living as though they are completely autonomous, outside of any authority, especially the authority of God. And at the heart of the matter, we see a spirit of vengeance in that whoever will stand in the way of one's autonomous will, they say, you're going to pay. We're going to make them pay. That's a vengeful spirit. Anyone who stands against them and their so-called rights, then they call for retribution. We see this heart of vengeance played out in almost every issue and situation of our day. And this is because the spirit of vengeance reaches deep down into the human heart. We, we all struggle with this. I want to contrast this with the Apostle Paul from 1 Corinthians 9, 3 through 12. So if you would turn there, 1 Corinthians 9, 3 through 12. Remember, This is in contrast to the spirit of vengeance and the demanding of these so-called rights. Mine answer to them that do examine me is this, the Apostle Paul says. Have we not power to eat and to drink? Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles and as the brethren of the Lord and Cephas? Or I only and Barnabas, have not we power to forbear working? Who goeth a warfare any time at his own charges? Who planteth a vineyard and eateth not of the fruit thereof? Or who feedeth a flock and eateth not of the milk of the flock? Say I these things as a man? Or saith not the law the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Doth, not, doth God not take care for oxen? Or saith he it also, or saith he it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he that ploweth should plow in hope, and he, and that he that thresheth in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things? If others be partakers of this power over you, are not we rather? Nevertheless, we have not used this power, but suffer all things lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. In other words, he's saying here, do we not have a right to receive uh, our just wages from what we've provided you? Do we not have a right to uh, demand of these things from you? Isn't this our due? Isn't this our owe? And then he says, but we lay aside our rights. That the gospel would not be hindered. We lay aside our rights. 
It is a right. He has, he's, he's speaking truth. The, the Old Testament does say this, and there is a time. I, I'm not saying that you know, we just forget about justice or forget about what's right or, or even the things that uh, we, we are owed sometimes. But I'm saying that there, there's a time for that. But for the sake of the gospel, laying aside those rights, this, having a spirit of humility is what the Apostle Paul is saying here. And this is in contrast to the spirit of vengeance that we see played out in our society through all this confusion, and it's the same thing Jesus was dealing with when he's correcting their false understanding of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So this reaches deep into the human heart. When it's within all of us. Our attitude is that when someone disrespects us, we won't take that. If we endure any harassment of any kind, our attitude is when someone hits us, we hit back, but we make sure we hit back harder. When a harsh word comes that offends us, we must hit back with a harsher word. This is the natural man. This is our condition. And when Jesus says, if they smite you on the right cheek, give them your left in response, understand that this is totally opposite and antithetical to the way we think. I think even as a Christian, that wouldn't be my first thought. This is why the Apostle says, I die daily. Because the way to have that attitude, the right one, is to die to self. We must see clearly and meditate on, this is so important for us to understand, we must see clearly and meditate on The point of fact here, that how this principle and this twisting of this issue, more than a lot of things, friends, shows us how far away we are from the righteousness of God without Christ. This shows us vividly how far off we are. We're not even in the same ballpark. Man, by nature, is at odds with God and apart from God because man is opposite of God. Man's desires are opposite of God's. Man's character is opposite of God's. So when one thinks that they are good apart from Christ, this is what self-righteousness does and that's what thinking you're good is, it must mean that God is bad. You see how that connects together? When you, when you have an attitude of self-righteousness, when you think you're good, then that must mean God is bad because He's opposite. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. God doesn't think like us. And when we lift up our own philosophies and our own self-righteousness, 
When we operate in pride, we're essentially saying we are better than God. And this is what the, this is what the issue was with the Pharisees. They had, they had said that they were, they were good because they were doing these things. And Jesus is saying that's not even how God sees it. That's not how God thinks. If you're going to say you're good, then you must be saying God is bad because he's opposite you. That's how it connects. And this is the way people live their lives outside of Christ is that, that we have it right and God is wrong. And so the Bible comes into question in society, uh, comes into opposition the, all of the things that God has set in order, the conscience, the family, the law, all of it is undermined. So we have it all wrong. It's all upside down. And Jesus, through this entire Sermon on the Mount, is turning it all right side up again. He's making right all the wrongs. He's restoring the honor of God's Word to its proper place and preeminence. In, in self-righteousness, man says he's preeminent. In understanding the right way, we understand and we see we're not even close. God is preeminent. Christ. Well, we're going to attempt... To look at three points. I don't believe I'll have time to go through all of this um, in one sermon. I, I think there may be, have to be a second part to this. But uh, nevertheless, we'll attempt to look at three points. Uh, number one, the principle and purpose of this eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth that's found in the Mosaic Law. Number two, the perversion of the principle whether by us or by the Pharisees. Number three, the perspective of Jesus, seeing it through the divine lens. So, that's the task. There is a tendency, and it seems even a spirit at work to misunderstand Jesus' teaching on this issue in principle and by consequence, diminish the principle entirely. And that is the last thing we want to do. To just totally get rid of the truth of what's being brought out here. Uh, let's look at how grand and glorious God's justice is and how equitable it is by the truth of this principle. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. There, there's a tendency in this modern era, to diminish diminish this principle, to diminish so many things about the glory of the law of God. And it seems like there is this promotion or this attitude of pitting the law and the gospel against each other. Like they're in contrast or they're coming from two different places and they're not. They're, they're, they're totally complementary to one another they're, they're totally in line with uh, the divine character 
And so there is this tendency. And like I said before, uh, many have, you know, taken this to say, well, you know, an eye for an eye. Man, that was that was that old bloodthirsty Old Testament stuff. That's not what we're under anymore. Uh, That's not true. It is good. It is equitable. It is right and it is just. And so the last thing we want to do is do that. Um, and so we come at this to seek to understand uh, through this divine lens that Jesus is pointing us to. This is a good time to be reminded of a couple things uh, and how we've got and how we've where we've come from through going through the Sermon on the Mount and how we've got to this point. So I want to remind us of a couple of things. The first is Jesus' purpose in addressing the law in the way that he's doing it and that he's exposing the internal unrighteousness to a solely external religion. So we have gone through, um, you know, the Beatitudes. We've gone through uh, other issues about, you know, the way a Christian uh, should think and what's, what's, what it's like in the kingdom of God. Um, but we... We see here, beginning in verse 17 that in Matthew 5, that Jesus takes a turn. He starts dealing with the law. The purpose we see as he begins, just for one example. Um, let's look at verse 21 again. You've heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. That word there uh, in the Greek is rendered murder. It's an unlawful taking of life. Um, So thou shalt not murder, and whosoever shall murder shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. In other words, Jesus is saying, you think you're righteous because you don't commit the act of murder. I'm telling you that you already have murder in your heart because you are angry with your brother without a cause. You're angry with him for no reason, just envious, just, you know, you just don't like him for something. and Jesus is basically saying, look, you think you're righteous because you're not murdering people? I'm telling you, if the law wasn't there, you would murder. The law restrains you to the point where you don't, but you would if that law was taken out of the way. This is the purpose. He's exposing this self-righteousness, and he's exposing this internal deficit of righteousness to them. That they, It was merely a show. Secondly, let's be reminded of verse 17. This is important. This is where Jesus uh, turns a corner in the Sermon on the Mount. He starts dealing with the law. Think not that I come to destroy the law or the prophets. I come not to destroy but to fulfill. So this is when he starts off talking about the law. So he he already knows the people's presuppositions. He already knows what they're going to think. They're going to think because they're going to think I'm teaching something totally different. So I'm telling you right off the bat, I am not come to destroy the law. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not come to destroy the law, the prophets. And when I preached that sermon uh, a while back, I showed that that was, if he destroyed the law and the prophets, he'd be undermining the testimony about him. Because the Bible, the whole thing, is about Jesus. And so if you destroy the law and the prophets, then you diminish Christ. 
And so he's saying, I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill. And then there are people in, in the modern contemporary realm of today's evangelical Christianity that say, yeah, I'll see, but he fulfilled it. So really, it's still done away with. That's not even what the word means. The word fulfill here uh, in the Greek, and I showed this in that sermon la- uh, a while back, it doesn't even mean that. It means to fill up. It means to raise up. Not to, well, it's fulfilled, so let's get past that. Let's go beyond that. I mean, there are things, it's not like the same where the prophecies are fulfilled. Where there's certain prophecies about Messiah, now they're fulfilled. Now, of course, there are things in the, in the law of God, and we don't have to get into that very deeply. But there are things in the law of God that I know through Scripture, the other Scriptures are set aside. You know, they're, they're, it's just clear. So let's be reminded of that. He's saying, before he even gets to the teaching and his understanding about the law, his interpretation of the law, he's saying, don't think I've come to destroy it. It's almost like in other parts of the Bible, let's say in 1 Corinthians 6, where it says, do not be deceived, no liars, no fornicators, etc. All the list of uh, immoral things, the ungodly will not inherit the kingdom of God. When the Bible says that, like don't be deceived, rest assured it's saying that because, hey, somebody's going to try to deceive you on that. Somebody's going to try to say, I've destroyed the law. But understand, I did not come to destroy the law. That's what he's saying there in verse 70. So keep that in mind. Now, let's look at the principle in the Old Testament. But before we go there, let's get a solid view on how we are to apply the law of God and the Christian's relationship to it. This is important as well. To do that, let's go to 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11. Okay. <clears throat> But we know this, we know, sorry, but we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, that be homosexuals. For men stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. So, he starts off there. The law is good. The law is good. But as with any law, there is a certain way to use it and apply it, you see. Every law is like that. If there were never any murderers or whoremongers or liars, there would not need to be a law prohibiting those things because they just simply wouldn't exist. You wouldn't need the law to come in and prohibit something that didn't exist. But the law is there because of sin. 
The verse also directly implies that there is a possibility and even a tendency for laws of God to be misused and misapplied because it says the law is good. If a man use it lawfully, the law is good. But there is a possibility. It's implying this directly. There's a possibility that it could be misused and misapplied. And this is where a lot of the confusion comes from. The law of God is also applied to any persons or things, entities, organizations, groups, shall I say nations, that are contrary to sound doctrine that is according to the gospel. That is, anything outside of the gospel. Contrary meaning against or opposed to. Anything that's opposed to the gospel, anything that's outside of Christ, is beholden to the law and its condemnation. The law is applied to the unrighteous. That's pretty clear, isn't it? The one who is born again ought not to need the law bearing down on them constantly in order to walk in holiness and righteousness. Because Christ liveth in me. Because there is a new nature that is no longer at odds with God. This is why a man must be born again. Except a man be born again, he shall not see the kingdom of God. Because... The, the nature is contrary, opposite of God. And so God restrains that by bearing the law down on that person. But in Christ, a new nature, a new creation. Now, this doesn't mean that the law is made void for us. We still need the law of God. We learn from it. We learn of God's character by the law. We're instructed how to live holy lives by it. We see so much richness and fullness of the glory of God through the law of God. We should love the law of God. But the law does not bear down on us. We need not fear the law of God. But the sinner and the unrighteous, they ought to fear the law of God like a terror that haunts them day in and day out. There must be law. There must be law. The statement of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is interpreted too often as just some bloodthirsty recourse that was back in the Old Testament. As like a license for revenge. You know, they interpret it wrong. The natural man, the, the tendency that we have is to interpret it wrong and say, man, that's just a bloodthirsty commandment. Look at that eye for an eye. Have you ever heard the saying, an eye for an eye makes everyone blind? That's from, that's from a misinterpretation of this. Because, and the reason there's, there's this type of interpretation that, well, that's just a license for revenge, it's interpreted like that because it's the default position of the human heart. This isn't a license for revenge. I'm going to show you that clearly. The, the, the scriptures are going to show you that clearly. But that's the default position of the human heart. An eye for an eye. Oh man, I'm going to get it. That's not God's heart. So let's look at the principles found in the Old Testament, in the scriptures there. 
It's in three places, in Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, and Deuteronomy 19. So let's first go to Exodus 21, and we'll read 22 through 25. If men strive and hurt a woman with child, so that her fruit depart from her, and yet no mischief follow, he shall be surely punished, according as the woman's husband will lay upon him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. And if any mischief follow, then thou shalt give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Burning for burning, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. See here God's compassionate justice there. How God is protecting the weak from the strong. In this one instance, and notice this is a civil matter and there's a judge there. But in this one instance, If men strive and hurt a woman with child so that her fruit depart from her and yet no mischief follow, whatever the outcome is, if mischief follow, if it doesn't, there is a a payment that has to be made. There is justice. That's determined by the woman's husband according with the judge. And if any mischief follow, if there is a loss of life, then thou shalt give life for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for, hand for hand, foot for foot, burning for burning, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. And if a man smite the eye of his servant, verse 26, or the eye of his maid, that it perish, he shall let him go free for his eye's sake. Now this would cause you know, the, the, the master of the servant to be in fear, not to, not to mistreat him. Because there's a payment, there's a loss. You have to pay for that. I'm tempted to go through the rest of this chapter, but for the sake of time, let's go to Leviticus 24. Verses 17 through 22. And he that killeth any man shall surely be put to death. And he that killeth a beast shall make it good, beast for beast. If a man cause a blemish in his neighbor, as he hath done, so shall it be done to him. Breach for breach, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he hath caused a blemish in a man, so shall it be done to him again. And he that killeth a beast he shall restore it. And he that killeth a man, he shall be put to death. You shall have one manner of law as well as for the stranger as for one in your... Sorry, as, for, as well for the stranger as for one of your own country. For I am the Lord your God. See here again the equitable justice of God. If I make a mistake or something happens, say I'm over at Glenn's house visiting and I kill one of his sheep, i got to restore that. I have to pay. There is 
justice. That's what's right. But it's equal under the law. The, the punishment must fit the crime. In other words, God is saying in this principle, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, breach for breach, stripe for stripe, no more but no less. Equitable justice. And you know, much of our civil law in our country, historically, is based on this type of equitable justice. We have written in our Constitution no forms of um, undue punishment, or however it's written there. No, no, no forms of, you know, out-of-control retribution. Those things are written in our law through this through the understanding of this principle. Deuteronomy 19. Fifteen through twenty one. One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin. In any sin that he sinneth, at the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. Notice the equitable justice there. You can't just one person come and make an accusation and slander a man to the point of, you know, bringing the law to bear on him. In the mouth of two witnesses, or three, the law of God says, the matter shall be established. If a false witness rise up against any man to testify against him that which is wrong, then both the men between whom the controversy is shall stand before the Lord, before the priests, and before the judges, which shall be in those days. And the judges shall make diligent inquisition. And behold, in the witness, if the witness be a false witness, and hath testified falsely against his brother, then shall ye do unto him as he had thought to have done unto his brother. So shall thou put the evil away from among you. And those which remain shall hear and fear, and shall henceforth commit no more any such evil among you. And thine eye shall not pity, but life shall go for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. I want to first point out something about all three of these verses, that these are civil matters. There's a judge present. This is a law court. This is not, you know, a group of people taking on themselves for vigilante justice. <clears throat> so notice in these verses that the issue at hand are civil matters being administered by a judge. And the appointed judges are to apply this principle to settle civil matters. In other words, the principle was not given for individuals to use to justify their own personal vendettas. The principle is, to, is designed to operate in a court of law in the sight of God. It says in the sight of God there. 
in the Deuteronomy passage. In a court of law, not to promote vigilant justice, but this was how the Pharisees were applying it. They were using it to settle personal scores. But we see so much how just God is in these Old Testament verses. And what a tragedy, I believe, that so many diminish these things and cause confusion. See how equitable God is here. See how God protects the weak here. How God protects the good from the evil. Remember, the law is for the unrighteous. Notice these are court settings. I want you to notice something here uh, in the Deuteronomy passage. In verse 21, And thine eye shall not pity. Pity has no place in a court of law. Emotion doesn't have much place in a court of law. It's the truth, the facts, and proper judgment. Remember the image of, you know, we have them on, I guess they're still on court buildings. Um, but it's Lady Justice, and she's holding scales, and she has a blindfold on. Justice, equal justice. Pity has no place in a court of law. He says there that this is what you do to put away the evil from among you. The way to put away evil from your society is to punish evil without pity, justly and swiftly. That's the way to put away evil from your society. Pity has no place in a court of law. This principle is used in a court of law. And the point of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, is that the punishment must fit the crime. This law is also found in the Code of Hammurabi. It's also known as tit for tat, quid pro quo, lex talionis. And it just simply means the punishment should fit the crime. We have a sense of justice, but it's tainted by sin. So man has a tendency to either go way beyond and hit back harder in a personal vendetta and in retribution, or a soft judge may pity the criminal and let the murderer or rapist go or give a light sentence. So God says, do not pity. Administer justice, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, no more, but also no less. So this is a good law. A.W. Pink said, Magistrates and judges were never ordained by God to the reforming of reprobates or to pamper degenerates, but in accordance with Romans 13, to be a terror to evildoers. This is a compassionate law. Because to punish evil is compassionate. To restrain wickedness is benevolent. To let wickedness run rampant and be lax on punishment is compassionless. Because then all of society burns and the righteous go down in flames with the unrighteous. 
just as he who spares the rod hates his son. That's compassionless to just let it run rampant. He who spares the rod hates his son. But don't provoke your children to wrath. You see how that principle applies in so many different ways? The punishment must fit the crime. You don't take your child in the back for doing something wrong and horsewhip them. That's over and above. You don't provoke your children to wrath, but he who spares the rod hates his son. Proverbs 13. And I'm going to lay this squarely on our shoulders. Because when the pulpits across our land went soft on this issue and stopped proclaiming the justice of God and the eternal punishment of hell, the rest of society followed suit. And the doors of this great ungodliness were opened. And we see the legacy. We, we now see the legacy of the church embracing liberalism. This is the legacy of liberalism. We have a society, my friends, that does not fear punishment. But this principle and law of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, belongs in its proper place in the court of law. It is good, and it must be upheld. It was never meant to justify personal vendettas. It was never meant to orchestrate an attitude of hate. It has its place. But in our hearts should be forgiveness. Remember when I said Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, I gave the example from Matthew 5, 21, where he's exposing their internal unrighteousness while at the same time they're promoting their external goodness or self-righteousness because they, oh, we, we don't murder people, so we're, you know, we're good. The purpose of the law was to restrain evil. Without that law, they would murder. People that are not born again have to have the law bearing down on them. They have to have a fear of punishment. They have to have the fear of the Lord, the terror of the Lord. They, they have to have it. There was a, there is a movie. I've never seen it, um, but somehow I heard about it, and I, I understand the, the, um, what it's about it's called the purge and evidently in this movie in there in this society that's portrayed in the movie they have a a law that one night every year punishment and all the law is set aside you can do whatever you want you won't be punished um basically the police just shut down there's no punishment for any crime. And in that movie, evidently, 
the society goes crazy. People rape and murder and kill and steal because that's what's in the human heart. And I want to tell you that if we don't have the law, that's the way it will be. So it has its place. The principle, the command, not to pity, to administer equitable justice, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, no more, no less, quid pro quo, tit for tat, has its place in the court of law. That's where it is primary. And it does have a small place in our hearts, only so far as we love God's law and we care about justice. We want to see justice. But in the heart of a Christian, one who's born again, forgiveness and mercy is above and primary. Our attitude must not be one of seeking retribution or to hold a grudge, but of seeking reconciliation. When Jesus was being nailed to the cross, this principle was at work. Even there, He was being crucified for justice's sake to pay the penalty for sin. And the the justice system of God showed no pity. No pity on Him. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The law demanded blood for our sin. But as He was hanging on the cross, He says in Luke 23, 34, y'all know it, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He says this about his executioners. He did not say, Father, destroy them. Give them eye for eye, tooth for tooth. No, he said, Father, forgive them. I'll take that. I'll take the eye for eye, tooth for tooth. I'll uphold justice. You see, Jesus knew, this is what we have to know, Jesus knew that justice would ultimately be done. He knew that the sinners who would not come to repentance and faith would face a pitiless, merciless judgment. A pitiless, merciless punishment in hell for eternity. He knew that 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 was coming. There would be no sparing then. That will come. 2 Corinthians 5.11 Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Jesus understood that far more than we do. Over and above. But in his heart was forgiveness. He sought reconciliation between God and man. He is the reconciliation. Stephen, the first martyr of the church age, preached judgment and wrath and gave a scathing rebuke to those Jews he was preaching to because he also understood that eternal judgment was coming and the law would bear down on them 
mercilessly. That was what was in his mind and on his heart. Not a vengeful spirit. Because then has they're stoning him to death, he cried the same thing. Father, forgive them. That was what was on his mind. Not a vengeful spirit. Let's look at Luke 9, 51-56, please. And it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, Wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them even as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. You know not what manner of spirit you are of. I would say that's a vengeful spirit. There is a time. God will have His way. Justice will be served. But we're not called to have a vengeful spirit. We're not called to seek vengeance. We give place for God's vengeance. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. You know, there's a, there's a, we have to have faith in that. We have to have faith to believe that God will Repay. God will vindicate me. Now, I am not a pacifist. There is at some point, I will, there are things I will fight for. But if it's in a spirit of vengeance, that is wrong. If it's in a spirit of pride, if it's in a spirit of selfishness, then that's wrong. We are not to seek retribution in a, in a vengeful way. If someone wrongs us, you have a right to take it to law court. You don't have a right to vigilante justice. You don't have a right to misuse this. Well, as Jesus is dying on the cross, we see His eyes full of compassion and forgiveness. Father, forgive them. We see justice there. This is why, and this principle is at play, the cross of Christ is the only place where justice and mercy coexist. I mean, that's, that's amazing. That God has made, it, made a way to reconcile, to rectify the problem of sin while not diminishing justice in any way. 
And so to the sinner that's here today, the unregenerate, the, the one who is not born again, the one who's not in Christ, there is coming a pitiless, merciless judgment. And I plead with you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Partake of the last offered cup of grace before it's too late. See Jesus there on the cross. The pitiless, merciless judgment being poured on Him. And see Him there saying to you, Father, forgive them. Well, let's pray. Dear Father God, thank you so much for this uh, word that you've given to us. Let your word be exalted in our hearts, Lord, today. And uh, let us not leave here uh, unimpacted. But Lord, please uh, let us be reminded of your justice. Let us be reminded of your grace. Let us see this, this principle of Holy Scripture play out in the right way. Uh, let us, Lord, seek you in how we live our lives. Uh, help us, Lord, to right the wrongs within ourselves. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.